Welcome back to the program. The U.S. seems to be giving up on training Syrian rebels. The Russians continue their bombing of ISIS targets, even while some of their missiles land in Iran, and refugees continue to flee from Syria, all while ISIS continues on the march. Palestinian protests turn more violent, and the cauldron that is the Middle East continues to bubble. To try and better understand and get some perspective on all of this, we turn to author, journalist, and Middle East foreign correspondent Charles Glass. To give us some perspective on events in that region, he joins us today from Erbil in Iraq. Charles Glass, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. When we talked last, talked about some of the things you had written about in, in your book, Syria's Burning, we also talked about the U.S. supporting this kind of mythical opposition in Syria. That seems to have finally evaporated. Reality seems to have caught up with the mythology. As recently as a few days ago, the U.S. accused Russia of bombing the Syrian moderate forces, which was the first time anybody had ever found them. So it seems that the Russians managed to find them, <laughs> if the U.S. is correct. The est best estimates, which I've seen in, the, in a website called Syria Comment, which is run by a very good scholar on Syria, Josh Landis, said that at least 70% of the weapons that the U.S. has given to um, Syrian oppositionists have ended up in the hands of the jihadist forces, mainly Jabhat al-Nusra and some with ISIS. So basically the U.S. has indirectly been arming um, the jihadists in Syria with the goal of bringing down the Syrian regime. But this, the goal has is, is failed. The, the war has gone on well over four years now. The regime has not fallen. And it really, probably given the failure of that strategy, it's probably time to rethink it and come up with another strategy. And perhaps the goal, since regime change didn't work, the goal should be at least to restore peace and security to Syria and then discuss what kind of transition there might be to, uh, to another government. How have the Russian actions of late changed the calculations there on the ground? The best that I can see from Iraq is that everyone, is, everyone here is taking notice of Russia's commitment to the regime in Damascus which is a contrast to the American support for the Kurds here in northern Iraq, where I am, who are very badly armed by the U.S., um, cannot get the weapons they need. They cannot even receive night vision goggles. I went to a hospital yesterday where a young man had lost his arm. He was a bomb disposal expert. and They, don't, they take these bombs apart by hand. They don't have the special suits that, that uh, U.S. forces would have to take those bombs apart. They are complaining bitterly that while the Russians seem to be helping the Syrians 100% to fight against ISIS, that the U.S. is not helping them except with occasional airstrikes, but not coordinated with uh, ground assaults against ISIS. What will that do in terms of Russia having opportunities as a result of that to, to extend its sphere of influence? Can we look for that to be happening there? It's too soon to say, and I, and I really don't know. I know that the Russian consul here in northern Iraq has been seeing the Kurdish leaders, inviting them to come to Moscow. How much of Syria does ISIS control at this point? The best estimates are that ISIS controls about a third of Iraq and, of, and a third of Syria, more or less, in terms of territory. In terms of population, um, they, they, the, they're probably less than 10% of Syria and Iraq, most of the Sunni population, but very little of the Shiite or Kurdish populations. The, um, it's, they're, they're, they have a lot of territory, but not a lot of people. But they do have enough people that they can um, 
tax and benefit from the taxes uh, of them. They, they estimate in Syria that they're collecting tax taxes on between six and eight million people, um, that they can uh, draft young men into their forces, just as the regime in Damascus drafts the young men on its side into, the, into their forces. Um, so in fact, you, you, you have people on both sides being forced to fight. And I think it's, it's a tragedy for Syria because there's, nobody's really fighting for anything. One side is fighting against a regime and the other is, is fighting against Islamic terrorists. Who are they fighting for? Because certainly as the refugee crisis continues, as people continue to flee the country, it seems that the country itself is being hollowed out. Uh, particularly in Syria, that, that is true. There's not much for people to stay for. The, law, the, the war has gone on so long that the, their savings are, have dissipated. People are unable to work on farms in vast tracts of the country. Factories have been destroyed or looted and sent and their the material sent up to Turkey. Um, there's not much to stay for. If people want a future, they they have they have to leave. And there's no because the U.S. and Russia are at loggerheads. Um, there doesn't seem to be any prospect of a of an early resolution to the conflict. So having survived more than four years uh, of this, uh, they don't want they don't think they can survive another four years of it. Given that the conflict has gone on so long, what was the tipping point that precipitated Russia's involvement right now? Why now? I would say that about a month ago when Bashar al-Assad gave an interview in which he admitted that his, his forces had been weakened, um, the Russians felt that they, if, they were, if they were going to save his regime, and remember, his regime is Russia's only ally in the entire Middle East, they were going to save that regime, they had to act more forcefully than they had been. They had been supplying weapons, but not much more, and now they're supplying a lot more um, because, because he was weak. He had lost Idlib, all of Idlib province, he had lost Palmyra, he had lost vast tracts of territory in the previous few months, whereas a year, a year before, uh, the regime was doing well and probably didn't need the Russian intervention. How is the Russian intervention being seen in other parts of the Middle East right now? I can't speak for many parts of the Middle East. I've only been in the last month in Syria, Lebanon, and Iraq. But in large areas, particularly among minorities, uh, the Russian intervention has been welcomed. The the Greek Catholic uh, bishop, uh, uh, patriarch in in Syria, uh, Aleppo, has just made a statement thanking the Russians for coming to the the aid of the regime because his community was being destroyed by... Uh, jihadist fundamentalists who don't want Christians to be in Syria. So the large numbers of people have welcomed it. Also, many Sunnis in Syria are welcoming it, not just because it's against ISIS, but because it helps to counterbalance Iranian influence in Syria. The Iranians, over the last couple of years, have come to dominate Syrian policymaking, and many Sunni Arabs in Damascus and Aleppo, who were not fighting against the regime, and we're willing to tolerate the regime, but they do resent Iranian Shiite influence in Syria, and they see that the Russia, they, they imagine that the Russians can help to counterbalance that. Do the Russians have the potential to overplay their hand right now, and what, what would that look like? Well, Russia's, Russia's um, policy of intervention, going back to Afghanistan, has not always been successful. They had the, if they put troops on the ground as they did in Afghanistan, they will find them. Uh, they will find more jihadis coming to Syria and Iraq to to fight them. So it's, it's a very dangerous game they're playing. If they confine their role to um, air power, close close air support for Syrian army advances, um, training, 
better, providing the Syrians with better equipment, then they're, then they're less at risk. But it's, I, don't, I don't really know what's in Putin's mind. I'm not, I'm not sure how far he's willing to go. The fundamental question is whether the intervention is cosmetic and political or has a deeper and more lasting purpose. Well, I looked at some video of, of the, some of the Russian airstrikes in Syria. They, they look anything but cosmetic. They're, they cause devastating damage um, to, to villages and to areas of uh, concentrations of forces of, of Islamists. And they, they are coordinating with the Syrian army, making some advances around Aleppo province. So no, it seems to be serious rather than cosmetic. To what extent are you seeing the U.S. reacting in ways that, that can be seen on the ground there in Syria? The U.S. is continuing with its, its policy of, uh, of insisting that, uh, that Bashar al-Assad must leave and not encouraging negotiations with him in order to end the war and defend the country against ISIS. So the U.S. is still says that it supports Turkish policy. Turkish policy is, is to leave the border open for ISIS supplies and men to come into the country and, and for men and for ISIS men to come out for R&R, also men from Jihad Nusra to come into the country and to go into Syria through Turkey. Um, the U.S. doesn't seem to be doing anything to stop Turkey from pursuing that policy. Talk a little bit about the, the ongoing refugee crisis. The Russian intervention in some ways has taken the refugee crisis, at least in the U.S., has taken it off the front page. What's going on with that right now? Well, whether it's on the front page or the back page or no page, thousands of people are leaving Syria every day, and the war makes has made their life impossible. In, in areas now that we're, we'll be suffering uh, Russian bombardment, more people will be fleeing, and, and some will flee to government-held areas, and others will will flee the country altogether. Just as, just as many people in the government-held areas who are being mortared by the rebels are also fleeing the country. I don't see that military escalation is going to stop the refugees from leaving. In fact, it, it should increase the, the flow. And what are you seeing there in Iraq right now? That's where we're talking to you from today. Well, in the south, there's, a, there's a, an offensive by the uh, popular militias, the Shiite militias in the south, together with what some elements of the Iraqi army uh, to, to retake Ramadi. They've taken areas just around Ramadi, and they say that they're going to have an assault to take all of Ramadi, which, which will give them um, a, a good inroad into the into Anbar province, the main Sunni province north of Baghdad. Uh, and in, in the long term, they, they would hope to take back one of, one of Iraq's largest cities, Mosul, but they'll need, they'll need to do that in coordination with the Kurds in the north. That seems to be a long way off. In that region, it seems as if everything is always a long way off. I think that at any stage of the Syria war, it could have been resolved quickly. At both Geneva conferences, had the United States, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Qatar on one side, and Russia and Iran on the other side, agreed on a formula to resolve the conflict and impose that formula on their respective clients, the war could have ended immediately. It may be too late for that, because I don't imagine that uh, the Islamic State will listen to anyone, uh, they, because, partly because they now have their own uh, independent sources of wealth with the oil and with um, the taxation of the population. Um, and also they have, they've captured so many weapons from the Iraqi army that they could survive for a time without receiving that money that they had received from Saudi Arabia and Qatar. Um, so they, they, it may be too late for that to be resolved, but they could, they could these, these outside powers impose a settlement on all the other parties and then concentrate on fighting against ISIS. 
Charles Glass, his book is Syria's Burning. Charles, I thank you so much for taking some time out to talk with us today. Thank you, Jack. Thank you.